0: welcome back to but where are you from a podcast about british-born asian life and that's why i'm talking in a fake american accent did did i nail that was the accent any good for anyone who's american who's listening please do let me know i mean even if you're not american but you thought the accent was good let me know don't let me know if it's shit okay we only want validation here and lies on this podcast No, but seriously, welcome back to the podcast of, but where are you from? Um, I have to record this on my Apple headphones because I just broke my headphone adapter walking into another room, got the wires caught on a door and then pulled the wiring out of the adapter. Um, and now it's fucked. So there's that. So what has been going on? I wanted to start off by sharing some hilarious screenshots of funny, funny dating app people, men basically. Because there's, so, there's just so much gold, comedy gold within the dating apps that I feel is not highlighted and talked about enough. I share them with my friends and sometimes I share them on my Instagram. But I haven't shared them on here yet. So I'm going to go ahead and read some hilarious screenshots of dating app people. This one is from a guy named Derek. And he says, looking for a sub. And then a few guys use this number and I don't know what it means. Uh, Hashtag 420. That must mean something because I've seen that a few times. Don't match me if you don't want to meet and just chat for days on end. That's not me. All right, Derek. Benjamin, let's match. I'll send you a funny gif of Jim Carrey. You won't reply. I'll send one more. Again, no reply. Then I'll delete you. Is it even worth it? <laughs> what What strikes me about that, Benjamin, is, this, is you told me nothing about yourself other than you're failing on the dating apps. Is that really the takeaway that you want people to have from your profile? Was there nothing else you could say about yourself? Maybe that's why. People aren't talking to you, Benjamin. Hmm, let's have a think about that. And then I haven't actually screenshotted this guy's name. On his profile, he says, I've got my shit together! Exclamation mark. Don't match if you're not going to talk. And then he's proceeded to name <laughs> things. Men do this. They just name things that they like to do, which are really generic. Daily aftershave. Creed with the eyes emoji. Is that meant to impress me? Foodie. Pizza emoji. Nights in. Popcorn emoji. Nights out. John Travolta dancing emoji. Drinks, friends, family, holidays, traveling. Isn't that the same thing? I like deep conversations, getting drunk in the pub. Give me Jack Daniels or Jameson's and I'm all yours. Mm, He screams basic to me. So basic. Here we go from CJ. He's 36 and he works in sales. Not a bot. Wait, let me start that again. Not on Marbella Boy. Don't pose with animals. Easygoing. Likes a stress-free life. Adventures? Who wants to chat? Why is everyone a fashion buyer with a professional photographer following them about? Well, what's it got to do with you? Maybe that's a trendy thing to do. And again, why are you focusing on what you aren't? Not on Marbella Boy. Doesn't pose with animals. I, I get what you're trying to say there, that you're not one of those people that pose with tigers i get that but do we need to focus on that could you not just focus on the fact that you're easygoing you like a stress-free life and you like adventures Let's just keep it positive keep it positive keep it upbeat you know you're a salesperson you're gonna be selling yourself not sell, not selling what you don't have you don't pose with animals great okay what can i do with that you know <laughs> this one from mark 27 makes me laugh And I appreciate his candor, he says. Honestly, just looking for casual. (laughs) That's all he says. Which I think, you know, straight to the point. Honest. We can appreciate that. I think it's fair enough. Craig. Five foot eleven, no kids. Looking for someone who has good energy to be around and a sense of humour. As I guarantee I will say some funny shit. No feminists, as everyone is equal. But I can't be arsed with someone who makes everything a gender issue. Always respectful, good morals, and like to think I'm intelligent at times. And yes, I'm bald, but I'm saving up on hair products. How about you? (laughs) Fucking hell. There's just so much to unpack here. Okay, you might be funny. That's great. That's really great. He's not a feminist, though. Or no feminist allowed because everyone is equal. What? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense and i can't be asked with someone who makes everything a gender issue <laughs> men men make it a gender issue craig but he's respectful though so that's good and and he also just wanted to just disclaim that he's bold and he's saving up for hair on hair products what does that mean oh he's saving up because he doesn't need to buy hair products yeah yeah i get you i get you that's fair enough fair enough lanesh love doesn't see color bobby So he's a policeman, I'm guessing. Manchester, inked. Masters in forensics. If you want cute dates and a laugh, adventures, and to go halves on a dog and swipe. I think that's too much commitment for like a first swipe. To like, start committing to buying a dog with someone. Fucking hell. I don't even know whether I want to commit to, I don't know, like a Netflix subscription with someone. Never mind a dog love doesn't see colour, interesting, and this person is a person of colour as well, so I wonder whether he is addressing that he's a person of colour, and to look past that, I don't know, it's quite interesting, and you're right though, love doesn't see colour, he's right, he's right, Um, another funny one from Mike, I am Beyonce, always, I like that, I didn't swipe, but I liked it, Liam, his job is a tea enthusiast. I don't know what that means. Wanna give a girl the feeling of how it feels like to be with a real man, not a boy. Yes, I do have pics with my shirt on, crying laughing emoji. So, yeah, fair enough. You wanna be, you wanna be a man, not a boy. So what does that mean? I I just deduce from that that he wants to show he he's got a big penis. I don't know that's I, I don't know why my mind took myself there but it did it did luke all right this is this is so funny and I, I this is more just a general observation but i love it when people just list things that they like like really generic things so he said new to manchester horse racing lasagna motown football salt and vinegar crisps liquid d peep show hiking fleetwood mac being hit by a car three times so i'm 99 percent sure that i cannot be killed (laughs) That that's random but like i just love these listed things as if like people are going to be like oh my god i fucking love lasagna i'm going to match with him actually maybe they do salt and vinegar crisps there is there is a good um you know you can start a good conversation with that because if you really detest Lasagna or salt and vinegar crisps or horse racing or liquid DB, for example, then you could then have a conversation about it. Or if you love Fleetwood Mark and hiking and all those things, then yeah, there's some commonality there. But I just find it funny how people list things like as if it's a personality trait, like lasagna. So that's like the first thing you look for, isn't it? In a partner, is I, I really like someone who loves lasagna. Very funny. Very funny. Oh, here's the last one for you, Dan. 27. He's a creative from England. Here's an emoji list of my interests and they've done loads of emojis. The first one is a knife and then he's just followed up with like popcorn emoji, alien emoji, bed, beer, pizza, skateboarding, whiskey, bacon and then he's put underneath. The knife could mean many things dot dot dot. Will you take the risk question mark question mark? The rewards could be great dot dot dot. I just think you're a fucking murderer. Dan do you not understand when you're talking about things like knives women just think you're going to kill them like I'm not thinking oh my gosh he sounds like a man of mystery a man who likes playing with knives what could it be oh maybe he'll uh, tie me up and I don't know um all I'm thinking is you're going to fucking murder me in my sleep Dan you need to rethink that or, or maybe it means you're good at cooking, but be more explicit. This is the time for, for, for you not to be mysterious and to be explicit with what you mean. So if you like any of the content, that I produce here at but where are you from then please head on over to my coffee.com page which is ko-fi.com forward slash it's Vivial where 100% of the proceeds goes towards be seen to fund our advocacy work and you can help fund us for the price of your usual coffee Mines and a decaf oat milk latte, just for your reference. So if you'd like to help fund all the work that we're doing, we are working with the Cabinet office, we are helping to spotlight more East and Southeast Asian voices. We want to bring better and fairer representation to East and Southeast Asian people through our platform, through our movement, and we can only do that if we have the funds to support it and can carry on doing the good work. So head to ko-fi.com Forward slash it's Vivyao, where 100% of the proceeds are going towards VCN, which stands for Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, it's a grassroots movement that I'm part of, and it's founded by five other East and Southeast Asian women. We are incredible. They motivate me. I love them. They love me. It's a very, very warm and safe and welcoming space. And... We're doing great work. We're doing amazing work. So please, please, please consider donating. Now to introduce the guest of today's podcast. I'm so excited because I had on Liz Pemberton, aka the Black Nursery Manager. She is such a powerhouse. She's an educator and she's genuinely inspirational and exudes such motivational energy and she she made me feel so energized after our call so liz pemberton she identifies as she her as her gender pronouns she's a director of the black nursery manager which is a training and consultancy firm which focuses on anti-racist practice within early years. So Liz and I first connected over on Instagram. She's been the most incredible ally for East and Southeast Asian voices. And so we just started chatting and becoming friends over Instagram last summer. And she started listening to my podcast, which I was so grateful for. Um, And she's just always been the most amazing supporter and cheerleader for our work. So if you want to check out her own work, please follow her on Instagram. Um, she is the Black Nursery Manager on Instagram. You can also join her next webinar, which talks about the fetishization of the mixed black child, which is happening on the 22nd of February at 7.30. And you can find all the information on her website, which is theblacknurserymanager.com. We talk about everything in this podcast from Liz's identity, to her working as an early years educator, to how to be an ally, to also how parents can help their kids at home uh, to become aware of their identity and other people's identity. And the problems she has faced as someone who is an anti-racist educator within the early years sectors It was honestly so insightful and I really implore you to listen to the entire episode. I learnt so much and Liz is here doing this off her own back. So I really, really appreciate her time and I appreciate you as listeners to welcome Liz with open arms. Yeah, you'll see how incredibly wisdomous she is on the podcast is that even a word i don't know but i'm gonna use it anyway but i was in awe with just listening to her expanding all this information all this information with such passion such knowledge she's incredible please listen and enjoy thank you we are recording i love your studio your, your background Looks so bit, nice. You know, a little bit of a different angle today. You <gasps> oh, just, but um, yeah, I just thought wide, wide view. I love it. I love it. Oh, I'm sat in my cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> I just hope the
1: sound quality is all right for me because I don't
0: have my headphones in. Oh, don't worry. Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. It sounds good. Oh. Sounds clear. Um, so, welcome Liz to. But where are you from, Liz Pemberton, the Black nursery manager? <laughs> You're dancing. <laughs> Oh, I'm dancing. and I'm, I'm tempted to sing,
1: but where are you from? I'm so sorry, but I have fact because I have been singing that for the whole of 2020. So listen, Viv, thank you for this. I this has been a long time coming, man. i
0: know i know like we've been talking for quite a while now on instagram and like just finding you has been such a blessing in in the midst of the the wildness of Mm -hmm. 2020 leading into 2021 um and it's been such a pleasure just watching you thrive and grow and your business and everything else and you just educating everyone on that platform which is just amazing to see um Thank thank you so much it's been a nice um A nice journey
1: uh, because Mm. actually it's been quite empowering, not just for, I guess, people who are receiving the content, but for me creating and delivering some of the content that I've kind of put on my Instagram platform primarily, um, Mm. really with a sharp focus on anti-racist practice within the early years. Um, so I've loved it because it's touched lots of different people, people who mm. do not have children, people who don't work in the education sector or the early year sector. But also I think there's like a breadth and depth of knowledge that we all should just have generally as a society, let mm. alone, you know, within our different communities, whether that be, you know, defined by race um, or gender uh, or ethnicity. There's so many intersections, isn't there? But I think mm. what I really wanted to do with my, instagram space is curate a space where everybody feels welcome and genuinely everybody feels welcome mm. kind of superficial sense of it's a safe space guys like kind of, yeah. <laughs> like genuinely Do you know what i mean and i think that's one mm. of the things that i've been most proud of because i feel like i've engaged with lots of different kinds of people genuinely genuinely different kinds of mm.
0: people and that's amazing you know like you are doing this single-handedly it's it's amazing to see it's amazing to see like just expending so much knowledge in such a in such an accessible way and like you said it does go beyond um, early years uh, I I don't have any children myself um, but I have a lot of young cousins and I'm my proximity I'm surrounded by young children and we you know we have to look at this as like they are going to be the ones that are shaping this future and it is so important that we play a part in that whether or not we have kids or, or work in early years or are involved with education in some way. So, I want to start by asking you the question <laughs> that has started this podcast. Yeah. But where are you from, Liz Pemberton, the Black Nursery Manager? Where am I from? Um, I am from Birmingham,
1: born and bred 0121. Um, you know, I'm always promoting Birmingham, <laughs> I'm promoting my city because I love my city. Um, my parents were born in the Caribbean, in Jamaica. Um, and so I am rooted in Jamaican heritage and ancestry Mm -hmm. Um, and both of my parents came over to the UK when they were in their early teens Um, and so yeah my heritage is rooted in Jamaica Um, Mm. rummy lass through and through Uh, so I identify as being lots of different things you know Mm -hmm. primarily what you see is that I'm a black woman but what that means in terms of you know, the intersections um, that I occupy in terms of my identity markers, they're so varied and they're so, Mm. um, they're so diverse. And I kind of hate that word now because it's really been, Mm. but, you know, Mm. we are so impacted by our life experiences and also where we are from, because we pick up lots of different things along the way, don't we? And as our families grow and our families, um, you know, reach different places, we are impacted and influenced by lots of different kinds of heritages and, you know, backgrounds. So Mm -hmm. I am,
0: you know, that's where I'm from. That's such a bloody great nuanced answer. that we're i am so going to stop people though aren't we Viv? like we are, we are nuanced people and i think nuance is such
1: an important thing to bring to any conversation when it's regarding identity um, mm-hmm. you are not representative representative of the bbc community i am not representative of the
0: black community what does that even mean you know we're so not trackless, i always say that it's so true because i i think certainly certain individuals can put people on pedestals like you you are the face of this community and that is so dangerous to glorify individuals in that way because our existence and our the way we identify with the world is just so different even myself and my siblings the way we see the world even though we grew up in very similar environments is wildly different and so how, how can one person or a group of people, a select group of people be the, the faces of uh, an identity yep. that yep. is multifaceted, um, which is both incredible, but also, yeah, extremely dangerous if we start putting people as like, you are the, the face of this and that. of of any community um so why did you decide to start your your Instagram page and when did you start it and start growing an audience from that
1: so like I started the Instagram page my first post was May 2019 2019 Mm. I think it was May 2019 or May 2020 I can't actually remember because I had lots of ideas around it and when I started mm. I was still actually a nursery manager so mm. I worked in nursery management for 16 years and I worked um in the family business so our family business is children's day nurseries
0: yeah
1: so my mum started the businesses in the, like the late late 80s and I joined mm. the business in 2004 but kind of thinking about my identity as a nursery manager and also the demographic of the children and the families that were accessing the nursery—they were primarily Black African Caribbean children um, and South Asian uh, heritage children. And in terms of like how my identity grew in that space, we became known as the Black Nursery. Mm. So colloquially, people referred to that uh, to the nursery in that way, and we were in an area which is. Known as quite an affluent middle class area in Birmingham called Edgebaston, but it was really weird because the area of Edgebaston is um, like a lot of a lot of cities, a lot of places in cities. You know, one side of Edgebaston is Edgebaston. I always say that <laughs> the other side is Edgebaston. You know, so it's like <laughs> a tale of two cities, um, and that's like an an area in Birmingham. So the demographic of the children that came. It was really interesting because we realized there was something that was happening in terms of cultural compatibility and where people mm. felt safe where people felt that they were seen understood um, and valued and mm. that was the communities um that were people of color
0: mm-hmm.
1: so when i kind of began my journey in in early years management i quickly kind of thought about the nursery the physical space being more than a place where people would drop off their children You know, I wanted it to be a community hub. I wanted it to be a place where my practitioners, my team represented everybody. And not just, as I said, in a a physical sense or in terms of their racial and cultural identity, but also in terms of their experiences, also in terms of how they spoke. And when I mean, when I say, you know, how they spoke, what part of the world they've come from um, and what they were bringing uh, to the role based on where they were born, because they weren't all British born. Um, and just kind of really breaking down nuance. I've always been interested in nuance in education mm. and in early years education, because I know that children are picking up ideas about who they are all the time from the people who yeah. care for them. And the nursery day is such, it starts at 7.30, ends at six. And some of those children were at nursery yeah. from 7.30 in the morning until six o'clock Monday to Friday. So they were spending an increasingly, you know, increasing amount of time with us. And mm. I want to make sure that that experience that they had Was one that was holistic. Do you know what I mean? That made them Mm -hmm. feel good and made them feel seen. And I realized the only way that I could do that was to make sure that I had the right people in place. Mm. Um, So being a nursery manager was more than just, you know, I'm the boss, I collect the fees, this is my family business. Mm. It was, you know, this is a place that I want everybody to feel seen, safe, supported, and also understanding there's an impact here for us as people of color. We're marginalised and we're oppressed uh, because of racism, mm-hmm. and I brought that into the space. I'm very yeah. open about that in terms of conversations with children and families, and just how I interacted with them and how I encouraged children and families to interact with with us to mm. be proud of who they were and not ever shy away from that.
0: Yeah, I know that's yeah. like
1: a mad long answer, Viv, but <laughs> <laughs> <not> no. <laughs> it is. But I want to get that out there because I think we have to understand. And reimagining how we see early years spaces. Totally,
0: yeah. I, 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 yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I think, to, if I had that kind of space when I was younger, I feel like it would have shaped my identity so much more, so much more. You know, just being cognizant of the fact that I was a different colour to other people yeah. I think would have made uh, such a difference you know from such a young age as well um so thank you for sharing I think that the work that you're doing is amazing and so that transcended into growing your Instagram page, Instagram, Instagram page yeah because lockdown happened Woo.
1: and when Woo. happened last year it was like okay uh, a few things have happened for me personally so I got married in 2019 um mm. and it was mid 2019 and I was like, yeah, this is great. But also, how am I going to balance all of this like work? Because I was so invested in the work because it's the family business Um, and just a job for me, you know, it's career, And Mm. um, I was kind of thinking about the fact that I was very much uh, leaning towards 40 and I wanted to have a family and I wanted to think about how I was going to do all of those things. And can I do all of those things? and I was starting to become increasingly frustrated with systemic racism within the early mm. year sector. Mm. And I kind of got into 2020 and to be honest, had enough by January of 2020, I was like, you know what? I don't know if I want to do this anymore.
0: Mm.
1: And strangely, it's like the universe aligned. March came, Boris announced the lockdown. Yeah, And I was like, I'm hopping and skipping and jumping out of this because actually I cannot do this anymore. The pressure mm. of everything was just, it was colliding. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I need some me time. And I need to get out of this. This has been 16 years of my life um, Mm -hmm. and I've given my all, but also as well, I was really tied up with the fact that um, it became quite a thankless task and not thankless from the children and the families, but thankless from, you know, the systems and the Mm -hmm. structures. And we can see what's happening now in education. I was quickly like looking at this and thinking, you know, this is not a fair playing field, yeah we, we are not getting what we should be getting in the early years sector um, mm. in terms of recognition, support, um, and just acknowledgement yeah. now in this like pandemic, we are like the fourth emergency service or whatever, but it 's just like we 're still being used as as cannon fodder, like nurses yeah. have to stay open, everywhere else you know can close, and it 's just those kinds of increasing pressures that I was seeing. Last year, and I'd seen way before that, but I just thought something's got to give. So, and yeah. jumped out of the nursery, lockdown happened, and I just knew genuinely I wasn't ever going back. Viv,
0: and yeah, I thought, yeah.
1: how can I transfer all of the great stuff that we were doing at that nursery and, and let people really reimagine an early years space that mm-hmm. values um, culture and racial identity? Yeah, and i transfer that and i just thought i'm gonna start talking about what i do and i was thinking do i do a youtube channel mm, uh you know do i do an instagram what do i put on the instagram you know you've got to ask permission for parents to use you know pictures of their children yeah so i thought nah, you know what i'm gonna go in with my whole self and this whole thing around visibility hyper visibility of a black yeah. woman in this space as an early years educator but also as a nursery manager but also as somebody who is a nursery manager of a business that's owned by her family. Mm -hmm. It was just a really great way of me broadcasting and telling and sharing with whoever was interested. Nursery spaces don't always look like this one. You know, sometimes Mm. nursery spaces look like the nursery space that I've created and curated. And I started sharing things and people started gravitating towards it Viv. Mm. It was almost like, wow, we didn't know this kind of space existed or a nursery manager was you you know and i think this is the thing about there are lots of complexities around representation yeah politics of representation Mm. but how we kind of utilize that as a vehicle to drive our messages forward and home about what is actually a positive uh, a positive space how we present positivity in terms of our you know identity Mm. that was important and instagram was the vehicle that allowed me to do that. And yep. if you scroll to the bottom of my page, you know, you'll see the progression <laughs> of how yeah. it started to take shape and how the messages that I was giving were hopefully empowering and impactful. Yeah, and the following just started to grow because people were like, you know what, I can really relate to this. And not just black people. Mm. That was really important. You know, families from every different kind of ethnicity, um, or however they chose to be racialized. It, yeah. it, they gravitated towards the information that I was putting out and was like you know what i feel seen yeah. This, is, yeah this is really powerful and it just it took off from there and i started thinking i need to turn this into a business actually mm. i know i'm not going to go back to being a nursery manager how can yeah. I, how can i monetize this yeah and yeah I, how do i monetize the knowledge that i have and share it with the world and that's what i decided to think about anti-racism as a framework, yeah. um, but also how I can transfer that into early years and talk about the fact that we need to have a conversation about race in the early years. Mm-hmm. We need to have a conversation about how practitioners engage with children who are non-whites. Yeah. Have a conversation about how that's done appropriately, how mm-hmm. it's insensitively, um, and how it's done from a point of, of knowledge Like, you can assume that you know because, oh, yeah, I went to Goa once.
0: Oh, yeah, I went to Hong Kong (laughs) once. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I went to Jamaica. I've got a Chinese friend. (laughs) I've got a black friend. That, 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 that,
1: politics. Like, yeah, I know, I know. And about thinking about how we can change that narrative. And what I started thinking about was selling that as Mm. a, as a package, but in a way that people felt, was accessible because people are still, when I say people, I think white people are still really sh- unsure about conversations pertaining mm-hmm. to race, particularly mm-hmm. in the early years sector, which is, um is seen as a nice, kind, lovely space. Mm. But that is not always the case for children who are Totally. Adults.
0: Yeah. I- I totally agree. And I think people assume that, oh, the kids are too young to know what racism is, but it's so embedded. It is so embedded. Like, I remember speaking to a friend who, uh, her, her daughter, she, she was asking her, like, why has she separated her black dolly from her, from her non-black dollies? And that was like a really interesting, and she, she was like, two? at the time Um, and that's really interesting and that comes from somewhere and she is someone who very much talks about anti-racism and and tries to educate but how do you do that to a toddler who can't articulate how they feel Um, so it, it starts from a very 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 young age and obviously I know you know that um, but I think the perception is that like oh everyone's just there to have fun and play together and everyone's fair and equal and it's really not the case it's really no, not the case because what, if,
1: what if in that space I, I am the only Chinese girl, what if in that space I'm the only black boy what if mm. in that space you know I'm the only South Asian child who you know wears a putka, What, what happens mm. in that space where my identity is not valued or Um, or even recognized because Mm -hmm. we know what it feels like to be on the outside. We know what Mm -hmm. it feels like when we're internalizing how people are receiving us as children. Children pick up those messages straight away. And if the only time that our culture is recognized when it's like, oh yeah, let's do, and you know, I always talk about this, Viv, but let's do Chinese New Year.
0: Oh my God. That literally reminds me of a memory that I had when... (laughs) in year two when like this the the teachers brought me and my sister in to educate them about Chinese New Year and I was like I'm four years old I don't know what the hell is going on
1: (laughs) I remember you talking about that on one of your earlier podcasts and I was like this is it this is the voice and I think discovering your Um, podcast in at the start of lockdown last year was so important for me um but also for me to then use um the podcast to amplify your voice on my platform because I thought it's a no point me just sitting down and being like, oh, I really like this podcast. This is really great. And telling my friends, no, actually, let me amplify this because you all need to hear this. You need to hear the experience of somebody who's British-born Chinese and has gone
0: through this education system. Mm, you need to hear yeah. um, and oh, that, that episode. Thank you. Really, like, thank you so much. Like... Th- I, I i was going to talk about this later but i i wanted to just say like thank you so much for all the amplification and the work you have done in terms of being such an ally to ec people and bringing the 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 racism that we experience into the discourse um like i i really really appreciate that and like we we talk about you probably <laughs> obsessively in the be group we're like how amazing is this we lovelies and like even within like
1: i feel like I love the BC group, and I love all of the connections that I've been making privately. Because there's yeah. something to be said about allyship, isn't there? And that allyship being used as totally. a word that you know white people are like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm an ally, I'm an ally." What does that mean for other communities, though? What does mm. it mean for me as a black woman to show and demonstrate allyship um, to a community that is not my community mm. in terms of race and culture? What does that look like? How and when do I insert myself into certain conversations? And when do I not? What do I amplify? What do I not? When is it my place?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I think, mm-hmm. you know, when I started having conversations with yourself, um, you know, with my other friends in real life as well, uh, mm. I, I thought about how allyship has really been co-opted. <laughs> the word allyship has <laughs> really been co-opted um, yeah. without a real deep understanding. And the co-option of I think allyship for white people in terms of like, oh, mm. now I'm going to be a good person because I've put up a black square. Now I'm going to be mm. a good person because, you know, but are you amplifying the fact that the rise in attacks for in community, like that, that, I did not see that amplification of that. And the talking about the fact that every time we're looking at, oh, mm-hmm. coronavirus in the media, what is the picture that is being used?
0: Mm-hmm. Where
1: mm-hmm. Where is the allyship in? actually protesting about that and saying no 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 because that's not up to you to do that as a member of that community actually mm. this is where we're asking for allyship and amplification and the hypervisibility of saying this is not right so when mm. i'm doing my and delivering my webinars um about anti-racist practice in the early years i always say what is happening for those children who you have perhaps never thought about um, mm. yeah it's all right to talk about black lives matter of course black lives matter but also Mm -hmm. as well let's think about the other communities so when i'm talking about you know british east and southeast asian community what are those children experiencing in your care Mm. Uh, and like you talked about being used as a token to be carted in to be like, tell us all about Chinese news. It's like, what? I know it's so problematic looking back. So problematic. But if you don't have an advocate for you in that space to be like, mm. hold on, that's not, that's not right. Actually don't, you don't do that. These things mm. will happen time and time again because um, white superiority complex, and I call it that now instead of white supremacy, yeah. white superiority complex rules. So there's just an assumption that, well, we know best,
0: yeah. No, yeah. Aaron, you don't. <laughs> I think it is really important, actually, that we, we pick out the distinction, and this is something that I am—I've um, learned very recently. White supremacy still upholds the idea that white is still supreme, whereas white superior complex it really unpacks that term in terms of why that is the the issue. It's not something that we should be upholding, and I, I think that's a really important um, definition that we need to start bringing into the discourse because it starts with language doesn't it like we, we have to be aware of the words that we're using
1: okay.
0: um so so in terms of like common common themes that you hear as a as a from early educators that people that are working in nurseries in early education what are um the the things that you hear from these educators in terms of the the children that they teach and uh, in terms of it doesn't matter we don't see race everybody's the same why are we focusing on race why are you
1: seeing race in everything One of the feedback that I have Mm. from a webinar that I've done recently, imagine as a white educator, white earliest educator, you come on an anti-racist webinar presentation and your feedback is, wow, I thought it was very one-sided. Everything is race. You know, I think that, I think Lynns just saw race in everything. And I thought, what a privilege, what a privilege to, you know, not have to see race. And I think, I don't want to actually be racially abused. I don't want to have to talk Mm -hmm. about racism. Exactly, exactly. You know, when you're on the receiving end of it for nearly 40 years. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to start talking about it now. And I'm going to start talking to you, Karens, about it. And it's really, it's really important that you understand, you know, where that term Karen is born out of. It's born out of the violence of white women. Mm. Historically, mm. the violence mm. of white women. You will only be offended by the term Karen if you are a Karen. If you see yourself in that definition of what a Karen is, <laughs> okay. you know, if not, it's cool. But I yeah. we have to start having those conversations because educators often use that as a a way of not talking about race. They're too young. Children mm-hmm. don't even see it. It's only because you're telling them that they know. But listen, I knew that I was black. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I knew mm-hmm. that I was racialized. But, and I also knew what the connotation of me being black meant as a child. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen because my parents told me. It happened because of the spaces that I navigated as a child, I saw how that, that was responded to. And mm-hmm. I, I can only deduce that could have been to do with the color of my skin based on, you know, we talk about microaggressions, but these things, they, they stack up, don't they? So earlier yeah. educators often talk about a colorblind approach um, saying that they are a multicultural nursery because they've got a poster with different children from around the world, holding hands, oh. um, saying so yeah. that, well, <clears throat> we don't have any children who aren't white in our nursery. So we shouldn't have to talk about race. It's not really important. Um, mm. If we do, what do we say? Oh, we can't, we can't, um, we can't say that because people will be offended. Um, mm. You know what to say? It, it's all sort of this absolute deflection from the mm. issue of, well, go and find out. Go and engage yeah. the community. And also we live in the technological age. There, yeah the internet and every social media, go Mm -hmm. and connect with people, it's not hard but it's an absolute unwillingness uh, of the sector, as I said, to engage with discourse around race, although it's always been there.
0: Mm -hmm. People
1: have been doing this work for way before the Black Nursery Manager was doing it, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's this lack of wanting to engage and not, I think, not putting or placing a level of importance on it. Yeah,
0: I I think that type of um, racism is the most insidious when it's that that ignorance and they don't choose to see past their privilege and the whole the whole argument of we're colorblind uh, we don't see race we don't see as an issue we're all equal completely negates any experience that a person of color will have has ever had uh and it's extremely dangerous because you if you see people as equal then wait where why do you see people as equal where where have you been like Yeah. yeah how do you not see this as an issue that is still inherent within our our entire systems—it's mm. um, really quite dangerous. And, and how do you feel as someone who is obviously you're the you're the one who's doing the the webinars and the educating and to get that type of feedback as a as a black woman yourself? How do you feel about <coughs> hearing that?
1: It's hard going, Viv, but also mm. as well, there are many little things that I put in place. So, for instance, whenever I do my webinars, I always have a white woman um, opening and curating some of that space to take that pressure off of me. So shout out to Kerry, shout out to Amy. Kerry and Amy are two white women who are dear friends of mine who open my space, they open my online space. So they moderate for me, Mm -hmm. they introduce, they lay out the ground rules because there's something quite interesting about people who access uh, my webinars. They're predominantly white women um right. they're predominantly white women who not only work in the space uh, or work in the, in the sector, but also are parents. Mm. And so sometimes when they're receiving information, particularly I think about race, when mm. white women see other white women talking about race, there's this level of, kind of, there's less, um, there's more engagement, there's less because mm. Because yeah. my moderators, Amy and Kerry, will go in and say, we are on this journey together, right? We are learning and I too have been on this journey. So I'm gonna recognize when you are feeling and demonstrating fragility. And them saying that as white women, it's. I, I watch it at play every single time I do a webinar because hmm. we have cameras, well, me and my moderators would have our cameras on. But before mm-hmm. my camera goes on, I'm in the background just watching the play.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I just, I hear how Kerry and Amy open the space. and they create such um, a safety blanket for me. And there's a pledge that they make because that is allyship. And um, mm-hmm. they understand what it is that they're doing. So I yeah. absolutely use their whiteness and use mm-hmm. their womanhood in this space because I understand the sector and they allow themselves to be used in mm-hmm. that way because they realize the importance of this work. So yeah. that's one of the things because it's always, um, you know, it can always, it can be a violent space, you know, yeah. can be a violent space. Um, and then mm-hmm. secondly, what I've started to do very recently, actually is send out emotional risk assessment disclaimers. So whenever mm-hmm. anybody wants to engage in any work, any nurseries, any organisations, there's an, a disclaimer that I send out, which says, before I engage in any work with you, as an anti-racist facilitator, understand mm-hmm. that the responsibility is yours, but I need to know where you're at on your anti-racist journey. So I talk about in this disclaimer that I will mm-hmm. not engage if I don't feel like we are all kind of singing from this hymn sheet of wanting to achieve anti-racism. And also that you're going to position yourself
0: mm-hmm. as somebody
1: that needs to receive this. Decenter mm-hmm. your whiteness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So decenter your whiteness. Be in a position where you know you're here to receive information. You're going to listen. Yeah, And also tell me about where you are in your journey. So there's like a little, three questions I ask before I engage mm. in any, you know, work. And it's, you know, w- what ethnicity, how would you describe your ethnicity? Now, mm-hmm. how often, you know, have white people had to think about, wow, what what, what, and how would I describe and define myself as? Mm. But puts it back onto the person, because as I said, nine times out of 10, it's white organizations, white people who are asking for this. Mm-hmm. Um, then I asked them to tell me about what work they have done personally and professionally around anti-racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I asked them to tell me what have they read and what have they understood from what they've read? So just a yeah. few key questions because it helps me then to ascertain what kind of space I'm possibly going to be going into. Mm. And I don't do anything without a level of consultation. And I charge for that consultation. So if you've got absolutely a me and you want to talk to me about what it is that you want from me, you're paying me for that. Because I think in this society, what has happened is white people have assumed that people of colour are going to just continue to give their labour for free. No, 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 honey. Like you <laughs> said, no, no, thing. no. Yeah. yeah, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're not. Doing that. Um, mm. So I do that to safeguard myself. So it helps me to make an informed decision about the organisations that I work with.
0: Mm. Yeah. That's, that's I think that's um, a brilliant approach. And what has been like the sliding scale of responses? Have, have you seen kind of the, very, the lack of effort when it comes to people enrolling in these courses? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Total, as I said, a total apathy, a total disengagement. You can tell when somebody has been sent on a webinar, sent on a course because their employer has said, right, well, we need to tick the boxes. So you need to go and do this anti-racism stuff. Mm. You can tell when people have come to my work because they've seen what I've done on Instagram or see what mm-hmm. I've done on social media. And that's a very different level of engagement. So it's yeah. beautiful and brilliant when people already know what they're gonna get. But imagine yeah. if you don't know, and think about how many, um, just any position of teaching, learning, uh, educating by a black woman, a lot of these people have never even been in a space where they have been taught by somebody who's not white. Mm. that in itself yeah. is like a mental hurdle that's having to happen so the mm-hmm. engagement with that you know sometimes is met with resistance but the resistance comes in the form of you know i always put out a survey monkey after my um my webinars and my, my courses uh, and it comes in that it comes in the anonymized um uh form of, of feedback mm. so i'm always like well they're not going to say it with their chest are they you're not going to come out and be like well actually That was shit. I didn't like it. You're going to do it and be anonymous. And Hmm. you know what? As I said, that tells me everything that I need to know. I never take it personally because I understand how whiteness as a structure works. I understand the level of privilege that's allowed you to feel that you can be like, yeah, I didn't really like that. It was really one-sided. Didn't really Hmm. like that. It was all about race. Uh, Duh. (laughs) Duh. Why do you think you're here? Exactly. Oh, I felt attacked. I felt attacked. I feel like, you know, it was all about blaming white people. I mean... Hmm.
0: Oh, that argument! The Viv, like the racial, yeah.
1: uh, the racial illiteracy, and that's what's happened. Like, when yeah, we're so really of, not. Yeah, because yeah. there's no racial literacy. You know, white people have been lulled into this false sense of
0: yeah, everything's fine.
1: Everything. Mm-hmm. You
0: know I mean? It was years ago. Yeah, it was years ago. Slavery was years ago. What are you on about? It's a, oh, it's in America.
1: It's not here. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. It is that. Mm.
1: It's that it's such an interesting journey, but I also do a lot of trying to take time out to just look after me. Um, and, and how do you laugh, do that? What I, do you laugh, do? I laugh a lot. I laugh a lot, Viv. Like me and my yeah. husband laugh a lot. Oh, time. I love that. Um, <laughs> and me and my sisters. I also I said to you like I'm one of three. Um, so me and my mm. sisters laugh a lot, and it's really interesting because one of my sisters um works in marketing and one of my mm. sisters works in IT. So. We are in spaces where we are the minority mm-hmm. um, for many different reasons, but we have so many shared experiences. Yeah, I mean, of just like the wildness of white women, the wildness <laughs> of you know racism, the mm-hmm. wildness of it. Um, mm. so it's so interesting. So I laugh a lot. I eat a lot. I like, <laughs> yeah, man. I, I eat a lot I love. Yeah, that. I love it. Um, and my husband mm. loves cooking. So it's kind of like I feel like in this lockdown. Period, <gasps> Ooh, what like, does he cook? He cooks everything, and he's so um, he? he's so meticulous with it, and he. Loves <gasps> it. So I, I'm really like I'm gonna put in an order. What can you know? I really like cooking as well, but I think Amazing. lockdown has really forced us to just be like right. Let's be really kind of um, conscious about what we're eating and how
0: we're mm-hmm. preparing our food and stuff, and so that's been a treat. So you know, I've really yeah liked that. You have to you have to find the joy. You you are putting out so much, so much labour, so much free labour, mm. um emotional labour, everything. And I think that has been a massive learning for me in, in the activism work that we're doing is like, we have to look after ourselves first. Mm. Gotta put on your own oxygen mask, otherwise you can't do anything. Um and super, super important. And I've learned that the hard way a few times where I felt like burnt out from <laughs> just just even just thinking about it even just thinking about it um so it's really nice to hear that that you laughing a lot it is such a good medicine you know like even though we know the world is shit at times really shit but like we can find laughter in it we totally can um so thank you for sharing that um and I wanted to also um ask you for in terms of Parents who have uh, small children, especially anyone who, people who probably listen to this to this podcast are, are likely people of colour, um, or majority of people of colour. What can parents do outside of um, the kids being in school? How can they how can they ensure that they're 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 educating their kids and and having these discussions? I think one of the things that's
1: happened with all of us as minoritised people is, particularly for us who. Whose parents came over to this country is sometimes this approach where you know keep your head down, if somebody mm. you know, ignore it, and that's so harmful because by yeah. ignoring it and keeping your head down, you internalize a lot of things, and you find yourself. I know you've spoken about this Viv as well on your podcast mm. earlier, and um, you can tell guys like I've just been spending time listening to this podcast, since- and <laughs> um, but not telling your children to just just ignore it. Don't ever tell your children to ignore it. Two year olds understand the environment that they're in, you know, even something as simple as if somebody takes a toy away from you, ask them if you can have it back. Mm. No. If somebody Mm. isn't nice to you, go and tell your teacher. If somebody, you know, if you feel sad, talk about why you feel sad. Who's made you feel like that? And what did they say or what did they do? Really Mm -hmm. having conversations which include, you know, you asking your child to tell you how they feel. Mm. because often if we don't give children space emotionally to to deal with these things and just to have that literacy around defining how they feel things become yeah. really muddled up as they get older um, mm. And i think as parents there has to be like a willingness to kind of just create that space but also to empower your children to feel really really secure in their identity mm-hmm. whatever that is get them to feel really confident and secure about that by demonstrating it So Mm. I know it's really important for instance, um, at my nursery, even though at any one time I only probably had like one or two white British children, Mm -hmm. always displayed, um, posters of black children with natural hair, for instance, Mm -hmm. or children who were, um, Vietnamese and were very specific. Like this is not a Chinese child. This child is Vietnamese. Mm Um, but, but, knowing and getting children just to adapt and understand that language, children who were not Vietnamese, for instance. Yeah. Uh, But also that came from like having discussions with families and parents around, again, that this word, this this nuance, you
0: know, Mm -hmm.
1: what does it mean? So talking to your children about what it means to be, a little a little girl or Mm -hmm. you know non-binary you know because these conversations are happening we have to be up with these conversations and be really keen to say well do you want to wear that today or do you not want to wear Mm. that today and what did somebody say at nursery when you you had that on because Mm -hmm. role play is something i talk about a lot and encouraging children to put on whatever they want to put on absolutely moving away from which is traditionally happening you know as always happened in the early years dressing up as an indian we're putting on a sari no Mm. no 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 what to what end you know Mm -hmm. let's think about being a doctor being a fire person yeah being a surgeon these little but and getting them to understand what's a doctor uh you know what does what does a fire person look like Mm -hmm. talking about identity so i think When you are a parent raising children in this current climate, to not have to talk to your children about identity, which includes race, to not talk about that is a privilege. Totally. Recognize that that is a privilege because
0: Mm.
1: parents, families, children um, of color, we are not afforded that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Even if our parents don't want to talk to us about it, something happens in the world where we're reminded that we are not white. So mm. it's an individual choice, not, I'm not saying all parents have to talk to their children about race, you know, but mm. be prepared that the world will tell them and talk to them about it. And we will internalize and navigate that in very yeah. different ways. And sometimes it doesn't come out until our adulthood.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally echo that. It didn't come out to my adulthood. Did did your parents talk to you about identity in that way? Yeah, the, it was really embedded just within yeah. our household. You know, who mm-hmm. you know if you're growing
1: up in um a black Caribbean, specifically Jamaican household, you know that it's not in the explicit, it's in the implicit, you mm-hmm. know, it's something that is um, felt and known. But in terms of our identity, we were going to Jamaica every year since like 1990. Um, mm. So we would always go and just spend time with my grandparents, we'd spend mm. time there learning about our heritage. Um, we would talk about what blackness means in terms of like, it's, it's a great thing, you know, be proud. Mm-hmm. Like this mm-hmm. is your hair. This is how it moves. This is how it, you know, it looks when mm. it's washed. Um, this is your skin, you know, so this kind of, yeah, an affirmation and this, I guess a lot of immigrant parents do this, um, a push towards excellence, which has its pros and its cons. Yeah. The value of education always kind of spoken to us, um, was mm. spoken to us, uh, in terms of what we could do limitless being given like this limitless kind of, um, approach to things, my parents were very, very keen to make sure that we all knew what mm. we could achieve, but then they were also really aware, I think, around the, the bias, the racism, even yeah. choosing to name us. You know, mm. we're, my name's Elizabeth, my sister's name's Emma Louise, my mm. other sister's name is Alex, Alexandria. Mm. I don't mm. care if you didn't want me to shout you out either, guys. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey. <What's that> name? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, you know, my dad making sure he said, you know, that was really he was he was conscious about that decision and the names that he chose for us, um, right. and and this assimilation, you know, all of this white superiority complex. You know, what does it mean to have a name that mm-hmm. that sounds quote unquote, you know, white? What does it mm-hmm. mean? And and deciphering that and decide, so it's very complex. How parents raise their children parents of color raise their children
0: and what they do in terms of preparing this for this world and for absolutely Mm. oh it's so complex and you've managed to somehow unpack the complexities of it but also get across you know insights in terms of how how you were raised and I I I kind of I feel like I lacked so much of that you know we obviously we were in a Chinese household we felt Chinese and but it wasn't almost like we wouldn't talk about celebrating it in the same way Mm -hmm. um and I know blackness and being Asian is very very different uh, in terms of like um celebrating our cultures in a very different way but i think like my parents were more so about like the keep your head down keep quiet survive work hard and i think that is i don't know like for my parents certainly that the immigrant um narrative of like we have come over to this country to survive and um as much as we can assimilate we will do to try to get by um yeah, so you know, a model
1: minority narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it how, really does. How harmful yeah. that is. And also how harmful that can be in terms of, um, I think these, these divides that we are experiencing and that we are seeing in these
0: mm.
1: narratives around togetherness. You know, mm. there is a togetherness, there is a shared togetherness. There is, as much as there is a big difference between being Black or be, between being Asian, mm. you know, there are so many shared experiences. Mm, mm. Sorry to cut you, Viv. I just had that thought. No,
0: I think that, I think that was I think that summed up yeah quite well because certainly, certainly yes. I like especially with my I guess doing the podcast and the the self exploration of my own identity. I just find myself gravitating to people of colour because of the, the, the shared experiences, you know, that it feels validating and it feels safe. And and one thing that, like, um, I wanted to talk about was uh, you, you mentioned about Ruby Hammond's book, White Tears, Brown Scars, and you recommended it to people who want to perform allyship mm-hmm. um, and how white women tears, and I wanted to talk about this, how damaging this can be to... Um, to people of colour mm. uh, and something that I've experienced myself. And I have wondered whether that's, has that experience ever happened to you? I'm mm. sure it has in yeah. some capacity. Mm. And how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, if, if a person of colour is listening, how, how would you say for them to deal with uh, someone who is invalidating the experience and centering themselves as a, as a white person? So
1: first of all, you have to prioritise your feelings. You are the mm. victim of, um violence that is emotional and that's what white women's tears are it's emotional violence that has in the history led to physical violence and it's led to the loss of life right mm-hmm. it's led to the loss of life of minoritized people because yeah. a white woman has cried mm-hmm, yeah, it's mm-hmm. very real so when we look at kind of historically um you know the case of Emmett Till in the US mm-hmm. you know a white woman said so therefore it must be true you know, yep. it is harmful. It's harmful, it's steeped in a history of violence and oppression mm-hmm. and racism. And I think when we look at feminism, when we mm-hmm. look at what feminism means to different women, it is mm-hmm. not a one size fits all. The, the feminism of you know white women is not the feminism of black women, not the feminism of Asian women, um, it isn't. There are intersections within that. We must recognize that these things exist in different spaces and take Mm -hmm. on different forms so i will always protect myself by as i said making sure that the people around me i constantly Mm -hmm. check in i constantly check in especially if they are non-people of colour so you know, my white friends, I check in. The minute you slip up, you're gone. There's your P45. There's no second chances. If you say mm. something problematic, if you do something that I deem to be harmful, not only mm-hmm. to me, but other minoritized communities, you cannot use any language that is a racial slur around me, even if it doesn't refer to my particular racialized mm. group. You can't do it. You're gone. I can't mm. see you doing this kind of like optical allyship. Yeah, Black Lives Matter. I was at the march. Mm. You're still fetishizing, you know, mixed children so yeah. now you've got to go there's a problem you yeah. you know things in terms of how white women center themselves take yourself if you know that that time is coming you can see before the tears are gonna come especially if you've called them out on something mm-hmm. they start crying that's a problem for you that is a mechanism used to make you feel bad about calling them out on their bullshit mm. no that is not your problem Move away because that Mm. is symptomatic of something that shows a lack of understanding about the wider issues. You cannot exist in this world and say that you don't understand what is going on. Mm. You can't. Mm. Just it's impossible. Go and seek it out. There's been enough national, global outrage about racism. If you're still choosing not to see that, and if I'm calling you out on it, and you're behaving in a way that I feel is like, oh, okay, cool. Now Mm. I feel bad for upsetting you. No. Don't feel bad. Own it. Yeah, so important, yeah. Viv. Because oh my God, yeah, these are things that are learnt. They're embedded. They're inherent from a very early age. Yeah, children know about how to. All children know about how to manipulate. All children are the best manipulators, <laughs> yeah, the best aren't they? Manipulators. Why are we not looking at that through um, a lens of race? Because that mm-hmm. also plays a part. Who Absolutely. gets blamed? If two children mm. are fighting and one of those children is a white girl with blonde hair and the other child, mm. is a black boy, you know, yeah. whose tears are going to be validated. Yeah, yeah, Going to be, you know, helped and supported. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yo, just be aware of the violence of it, but just stay firm in your belief that, you know, if you felt it, it's happened, mm-hmm. not be gaslit into thinking, Oh, you no, know, it's not real. Do not, mm. do not, you know how you feel and always, always, surround yourself with people who validate your feelings
0: absolutely absolutely and i think you know like you said like they choose to ignore it like you it's so out there there is no way they they can run away from this and it's so alarming when you see someone who is stuck at the the white guilt stage i feel guilty i feel so bad i feel so helpless like you it's making me feel attacked it's my fault and like That takes so much emotional energy for a person of color to then get you past that point, and it shouldn't. They shouldn't be doing that for you. And yet, I think I found myself in situations where I have been that friend Mm -hmm. to have to um, educate someone, to to advocate for Black Lives Matter, to advocate for other social justice causes, other voices, easy voices, Mm -hmm. and people still don't understand, and they still see it as. An attack and then they get upset because you're calling them out on it yeah, yeah and it i don't think people realize just how damaging that is so damaging and so protecting yourself absolutely and i think it gets really complicated when it's people within your proximity who are very close to you and you may not have had these discussions beforehand for whatever reason you've existed in spaces where you haven't had to and that's a very privileged thing for me to say um but when it's kind of brought to the fore and you see the the lack of knowledge the the lack of willingness to learn as well and the continual lack of it because they're still deciding not to learn and still want you to placate them in the process.
1: Yeah, yeah. Whilst educating, you should also be aware of how they're gonna feel when you're telling them about your oppression. that mm-hmm. you are understanding there's a level of apathy. How can you know me for so long, all of my life? And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like, what? Hey? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You and you, you have to ask yourself, have you actually known me? Or have you also tokenized our friendship based on who you think I am or should be?
0: Mm, mm-hmm. Alarm- that's alarming. Yeah. Like it's so scary to think that that could be the case where they they see you as a person of colour, but they will only see you for the the good things. You know, when we are celebrating Loon New Year, when we are, I don't know, ordering food and we take you to a nice Chinese restaurant and we order food for you, for example. Yeah, all those good things. But then ignoring and choosing to ignore the oppressed side, the racism, everything else is so violent, so violent and so damaging.
1: Mm. It's, a lot, it's a lot to to take on. I think that's why, you know, when I've done that, that post and I kind of like spoke about, spoke about our shared histories and stuff and talked about, you know- Yes, let's such, talk about that. Yeah, allyship is such a strange thing, isn't it? And as I said, we can't mm. take away from the fact that for a long time, particularly our communities, um, black Jamaican, Chinese, mm. our communities and our cultures and our identities have been merged for so long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I kind of saw that, that T-shirt from Carly Woo, big up Carly. Big uh, up Carly. Big up Carly. Um, <laughs> and I you know, have my own understanding and experience of hacker people and understanding the significance of hacker people in Jamaica, mm-hmm. bringing that history together for, uh, I guess, a new audience, if you like. Anybody who mm, is mm. Jamaican heritage and descent understands we've always known Chinese Jamaicans. That's just normal. Um, yeah. We've always gone to Jamaica and, like, Mr. Chin owns a hardware store. Like, that's normal. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that identity being merged has just always been normalized. But I think what's happened is there has been this separation in terms of, like, I guess, British born Chinese, particularly, mm-hmm. and, you mm-hmm. know, black Jamaican heritage. People born in Britain this understanding yeah. of how do we then connect the dots if we are here in 2021 and we're mm-hmm. in a similar generation we're mm-hmm. in our 30s or whatever we should still be making sure that we're connecting those dots because our histories are merged our histories are shared and we have to talk about how our histories um, impact one another and why that's even more of a case for allyship that's mm-hmm. even more of a case for togetherness because we have people in our families who represent different elements of identities when it comes to, absolutely, you know, and I, I am speaking specifically about, as I said, like hacker people. Um, mm-hmm. That is something that's very, very specific to what is now, and has been for a very long time, since like mm-hmm. 1800s, part of Jamaican society and community. Mm, of course, there yeah. are things in that, that are, you know, around colorism and around hierarchy and around economics and stuff, but we can't deny the fact that we have a shared heritage, we have a yeah. shared history. Um, Absolutely. And these communities have lived alongside each other for a very, very long time. We can't mm-hmm. then just be in the UK and then reproduce white superiority complex between mm-hmm. our communities. We can't do that and we can't do a, wow, I met a Chinese person once and they said they didn't like black people pardon? <laughs> that's one person. Oh, I met a black person once and they were like, yeah, now nah, we don't really mm. like, you don't like Chinese people. That's one person.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: You know, and we have to get away from this homogenized approach of yes. one person represents all people. That is not the case. No, we, we still do perpetuate these same, as I said, white superiority complex values in, even in our interactions with one another
0: from mm-hmm. minoritized
1: communities. And that's why it was so important that I put up that post you know, with Carly's work and talked about that shared history, talked about that shared heritage. That was important for me. Um, Yeah. Everybody needs to know about this and be really Mm. hyper-visible
0: in this space and show up. Absolutely. For anyone who hasn't seen Liz's post, she, stood, she did a great post uh, wearing Carly's T-shirt and talked about the, the, the rooted culture between Jamaican people and Hakka people. Um, and it, obviously it's rooted in colonialism, but... Um, y- but there is that shared cultural history, language, everything uh, between that exists between uh, Jamaica and Hakka people, and you you list out so many interesting facts that uh, talk about the history uh, that I did not I did not know half the stuff. Like it's actually quite funny that you posted that because I was speaking with someone who was an, an eighth. Uh, he's Jamaican. He identifies as Jamaican, um, but he is an eighth. Hakka Chinese mm-hmm. and he shared a photo of his grandma who identified quite strongly with being Hakka mm-hmm. um and I was just like this is fascinating mm-hmm. because it's still it, it is around in our in our generation now we still have people who talk about um their history and their family and their lineage yeah. and it's incredible incredible mm-hmm. um so thank you for sharing that. I'm Amplifying that, you know, when when you, I think you got a lot of great engagement yes. from that post, and just just really taking it one step further in terms of like you said, the case of why we need to amplify other other um, each other's causes yes. and, e- and and other communities other than uh, in our own. And yeah, really thank you for that. It meant a lot to be able to to read that and see that. So. Thank you, Liz, for, for everything Listen, that you Liz, do. Thank you
1: for everything that you're doing. I told you when I kind of discovered the podcast, don't stop. I remember just sending that message, like, <laughs> don't stop, Viv. Like, keep on doing it, keep on churning these out. I know it's hard, <laughs> you know, committing to it. We need this. We need this voice. We need to hear your voice. So, you know, oh, thank you. you have been really instrumental in ensuring that people have no excuse. They've mm-hmm. got no excuse. The Domino's advert, you've got no excuse to not Mm. take action. The BBC and their absolute misuse of photos you've got no excuse to amplify these things. Like everybody is talking about this. And if I can share this on my platform because of what I have seen myself, but also this is coming straight from you, like the community that you are, I guess, I know it's not one person represents a whole community, but the community kind of issues that are grounded in racism Mm. systemically, You know, you are bringing a voice to that and it's so valuable, so thank you.
0: Oh, that's so kind. I really thank needed you.
1: to hear that
0: today. I had such a great time talking about all of this today. Same Honestly. thank you. Thank, thank you. Me. And what where can people find you? You I, I will do an intro where people I will have put your handle beforehand. But if anyone's still listening right to the very end, yeah, 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 where yeah. can people find if you can and find me? Um Instagram
1: at the Black Nursery Manager. Um mm-hmm. that's where I'm most active. I'm on Twitter. Um as well but not as active on twitter mm. but liz pem the black nursery manager, tbnm i always forget my twitter handle <laughs> um <laughs> on facebook the black nursery manager um yeah holler at me like mm-hmm. find me but instagram man instagram's where i instagram well and i love
0: yes it. Yeah. yes amazing well thank you for everything like you, you've just been yeah i'm so happy that you said yes it's an honor and a privilege to have you on the
1: podcast. Thank you guys. Thank you for everyone for like listening as well because I just hope that as I said, it's impacted something, us having this conversation, you know? Mm-hmm. I'd like mm-hmm. I'd like everybody to listen. I'll be sharing the hell out of this as well.
0: Oh, to- thank you so much.